Welcome to today's reading of the January 26th, Friday, Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger, and here's our first story off the Globe Gazette. Consumer spending drives growth is the headline. GDP report shows 3.3% increase in final quarter of 2023. And the dateline is Washington, written by Paul Wiseman of the Associated Press. The nation's economy, the nation's economy, grew at an unexpectedly brisk 3.3% annual pace from October through December as Americans showed a continued willingness to spend freely despite high interest rates and price levels that have frustrated many households. Thursday's report from the Commerce Department said the gross domestic product, the economy's total output of goods and services, decelerated from its sizzling 4.9% growth rate the previous quarter. Still, the latest figures reflected the surprising durability of the world's largest economy, which U.S. voters are assessing ahead of the November elections. The latest data marked the sixth straight quarter in which GDP has grown at an annual pace of 2% or more. Consumers, who account for about 70% of the total economy, drove the growth. Their spending expanded at a 2.8% annual rate for items ranging from clothing, furniture, recreational vehicles, and other goods to services like hotels and restaurant meals. The GDP report also showed that despite the robust pace of growth in the October-December quarter, inflationary measures continued to ease. Consumer prices rose at 1.7% annual rate, down from 2.6% in the third quarter. And excluding volatile food and energy prices, so-called core inflation came in at 2% annual rate. Those inflation numbers could reassure the Federal Reserve's policymakers who already suggested they expect to cut their benchmark interest rate three times in 2024, reversing their 2022-23 policy of aggressively rising rates to fight inflation. Some economists think the Fed could begin cutting rates as early as May. Nathan Sheets, global chief economist at Citi, said that recent experience suggests that economic growth can remain solid even as inflation cools. It underscores for the Fed that they don't have to be in a hurry to ease borrowing rates to aid the economy, said Sheets, who thinks the first rate cut will occur in June. After an extended period of gloom, Americans are starting to feel somewhat better about inflation and the economy, a trend that could sustain consumer spending, fuel economic growth, and potentially affect voters' decisions this fall. A measure of consumer sentiment by the University of Michigan, for example, has jumped in the past two months by the most since 1991. There is growing optimism that the Fed is on track to deliver a rare soft landing, keeping borrowing rates high enough to cool growth, hiring, and inflation, yet not so much as to send the economy into a tailspin. Inflation touched a four-decade high in 2022, but has since edged steadily lower without the painful layoffs that most economists thought would be necessary to slow the acceleration of prices. The economy has repeatedly defied predictions that the Fed's aggressive rate hikes would trigger a recession. Far from collapsing last year, 
the economy accelerated, expanding 2.5% up from 1.9% in 2022. Our expectation is for a soft landing, and it looks like things are moving that way, said Beth Ann Bovino, who chief economist at U.S. Bank. Still, Bovino expects the economy to slow somewhat this year as higher rates weaken borrowing and spending. People are going to get squeezed, she said. At an appearance Thursday, President Joe Biden pointed to the strength of the GDP report to tout his stewardship of the economy. The experts from the time I got elected were insisting that a recession was just around the corner, he said during a visit to the swing state of Wisconsin. Every month there's going to be a recession. Well, you know, we've got really strong growth. Here is the second story on the uh, front page. Trump leans into voter fraud playbook ahead of November. Former president is laying groundwork to cry foul if he loses expected Biden rematch. It's written by Nicholas Ricarde and Ali Ali Swenson of the Associated Press. The dateline is New York. After he won the New Hampshire Republican primary Tuesday night, former President Donald Trump complained about his main GOP rival, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, about immigration, inflation, and his likely opponent in November, President Joe Biden. One thing he didn't complain about, voter fraud in the election he had just won. That continues a pattern for Trump as he steamrolls through the GOP presidential primary and toward an increasingly likely November rematch with Biden. While Trump generally refrains from claiming voter fraud in elections he wins, he spends plenty of time laying the groundwork to cry fraud should he lose an upcoming vote. He's already been doing that with an eye toward November's general election. They use COVID to cheat, and they did a lot of other things, too. We're not going to let that happen, Trump said of Democrats in his Tuesday night speech to supporters in New Hampshire. You can never forget history because if you forget, you never, you never recover from it and you repeat. For months, Trump has been alleging that he could be the victim of fraud in November, making the same sort of explosive groundless allegations that fueled the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol and have continued to spark a wave of threats against election workers nationwide. Trump made similar allegations before the 2020 election, predicting for months there would be a widespread fraud that November and contending that November and contending he could only lose if the election was stolen from him. He's doing it all out in full view, said David Becker of the Center for Election Innovation and Research and co-author of The Big Truth about Trump's 2020 election lies. If he is the Republican nominee, he has made clear that he'll lie about an election that he's lost. Well, Trump's campaign did not respond to a request for comment. His continued false claims about the 2020 election have resonated with Republican voters, a majority of whom believe Biden was not legitimately elected, despite all evidence to the contrary. Trump lost dozens of court challenges. His own attorney general found no evidence of widespread fraud and reviews, audits and recounts in the battleground states where he contested his loss all affirmed Biden's victory. Rachel Ory of the Bipartisan Policy Center said Trump's preemptive allegations of fraud have become built into the nation's political culture. It's been normalized. I think what in 2020 was seen as something 
somewhat outlandish, is now an anticipated part of the process, Ori said. And we see more and more candidates adopting the election denial tactics that Donald Trump is using, either as a way to thrust themselves into a national spotlight or as a way to fundraise. Fundraise. Setting the stage to blame an election loss on fraud has clear consequences, Ori said, pointing to the fact that threats and harassment against election officials after 2020 were especially severe in battleground states that Trump narrowly lost. Iowa's Republican caucuses illustrate Trump's playbook. In 2016, he was narrowly defeated in the state by Senator Ted Cruz and immediately, and without evidence, alleged that fraud was the reason. Last week, Trump won by a record margin and made no such allegations. In the run-up to the more competitive New Hampshire primary, Trump walked the line on preemptively alleging foul play. He bemoaned that state law allows undeclared voters, who make up about 40% of the state's electorate, to cast ballots in either party's primary. That includes letting people registered with one party switch their affiliation before the January primary, as long as they did so before an October deadline. The state also allows same-day voter registration. Trump falsely described this as letting Democrats vote in the Republican primary. One of his surrogates, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance, went further, alleging without evidence that Haley was asking liberal Democrats to come into this state from Massachusetts and support her in the GOP primary. Such a scheme wouldn't be possible because the state's same-day registrants must provide proof of identity and residency in New Hampshire. Trump held back from echoing Vance's allegations Tuesday, though he did briefly reiterate the unfounded claim that Democrats voted for Haley before focusing on his victory. Trump then claimed he won in 2020, perpetuating his falsehoods about that election. He also said he won in 2016, and it wasn't clear whether he was repeating prior false claims about winning New Hampshire in that year's general election, even though he lost it. Despite his overall 2016 victory, Trump blamed losses in various states and in the popular vote on fraud that was never proven, a committee he uh, um, a committee he impaneled to reach for voter fraud disbanded without finding any. Stephen Levitsky, a professor at Harvard and co-author of How Democracies Die, I'll say it again, How Democracies Die, said Trump's refusal to admit defeat in elections combined with demonizing, demonizing the other side is a textbook authoritarian tactic. When you convince your followers that your opponents represent an existential threat, you legitimize, you justify authoritarian measures, Levitsky said, and that's what authoritarians do. Moving to page two of the Gazette, Seattle officer faces discipline over jokes about students' death. It's an Associated Press article. Dateline is Seattle. A Seattle police officer violated policing standards when he made callous remarks about the death of a graduate student from India who was struck by another officer's vehicle in a crosswalk last year, the city's Office of Police Accountability said this week. Police Chief Adrian Diaz will decide on discipline, which could include termination for Officer Daniel Otterer, after members of the chief's chain of command discussed the findings and recommendations from the watchdog group at the disciplinary hearing. 
that was held Tuesday, the Seattle Times reported. Arderer, A-U-D-E-R-E-R, is also vice president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild. Civilian OPA director Gino Betts, Jr., did not announce his discipline recommendations. They were sent to Diaz, who must justify his findings in writing if they differ. Watchdog Group had been investigating Ottawa since September when police officials heard audio from his body camera recorded hours after the death of 23-year-old Janavi Kandula, who was struck and killed in a crosswalk by Officer Kevin Dave's SUV on January 23 of 2023. Dave was driving 74 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone on the way to an overdose call and started braking less than a second before hitting Kandula, according to a report by a detective from the department's traffic collusion, collision investigation team. It determined that Dave was going uh, 63 miles per hour when he hit Kandula, and his speed didn't allow either of them time to detect, address, and avoid a hazard that presented itself. The vehicle's emergency lights were activated, and Dave chirped his siren immediately before the collision, the report said adding Kandula was thrown 138 feet. A criminal investigation is pending. The King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office hired an outside firm last fall to review the police investigation. Its results are expected within a few weeks. Betts concluded in his report that Otterer's statements, in which he laughed, suggested Kandula's life had limited value and said the city should just write a check for $11,000 damaged the department's reputation and undermined public trust on a scale that's difficult to measure. His comments were derogatory, contemptuous, and inhumane, Betts wrote. For many, it confirmed, fairly or not, beliefs that some officers devalue and conceal perverse views about community members. Outer Otterer violated policies that say officers should strive to act professionally at all times, according to the report. The department prohibits behavior that undermines public trust, including any language that is derogatory, contemptuous, or disrespectful toward any person. That is a quote. The city's Office of Inspector General, which reviews and certifies police disciplinary investigations, found Betts conclusions thorough, timely, and objective. From page three of the Gazette, antitrust regulators probe AI partnerships. U.S. antitrust enforcers opened an investigation into the relationships between leading artificial intelligence startups and the tech giants that invested billions of dollars into them. The action targets Amazon, Google, and Microsoft and their sway over the generative AI boom that's fueled demand for chatbots such as ChatGBT and other AI tools that can produce imagery and sound. We're scrutinizing whether these ties enable dominant firms to exert undue influence or gain privileged access in ways that could undermine fair competition, Lena Khan, U.S. Federal Trade Commission chair, said Thursday at an AI forum. The FTC said Thursday it issued compulsory orders to five companies, cloud providers Amazon, Google and Microsoft, and AI startups, Anthropic and OpenAI, to provide information regarding investments and partnerships. Next article. Trump official gets jail for contempt conviction. Dateline is Washington. 
Trump White House official Peter Navarro, convicted of contempt of Congress for refusing, for refusing to cooperate with the congressional investigation into the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, was sentenced Thursday to four months behind bars. Navarro was found guilty of defying a subpoena for documents and a deposition from the House January 6 committee. He served as a White House trade advisor under then-President Donald Trump and later promoted the Republican baseless claims of mass voter fraud in the 2020 election he lost to Democrat Joe Biden. Navarro claimed he couldn't cooperate with the committee because Trump invoked executive privilege. He was the second Trump aide convicted of contempt of Congress charges. Former White House advisor Steve Bannon previously received a four-month sentence but is free pending appeal. Navarro's attorneys filed a notice that he also will appeal. And briefly, a panel of 17 federal appeals court judges in New Orleans held a hearing Thursday and will decide whether a 2018 Twitter post by Tesla CEO Elon Musk unlawfully threatened Tesla employees with the loss of stock options if they unionized. A transgender care article. A group of transgender veterans filed a lawsuit Thursday seeking to force the Department of Veteran Affairs to provide and pay for gender-affirming surgencies. In Georgia, lawyers for former President Donald Trump said Thursday that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis should be removed from the Georgia election interference case, claiming she inappropriately injected race into the case and stoked racial animus in response to allegations of misconduct against her. In Iraq, the United States and Iraq soon will begin talks to wind down the mission of a U.S.-led military coalition formed to fight the Islamic State group in Iraq, both governments said Thursday. A hate crime. Federal court will hear appeals March 27 of three white men convicted of hate crimes for chasing and killing Ahmad Arbery, 25, in a Georgia neighborhood in 2020. His killing sparked national outcry. Still on page 3, article, Officials say Israel, Israeli fire kills 20. Authorities say crowd was waiting to receive humanitarian aid. It's written by Najib Jobain, Jack Jeffrey, and Lee Keith of the Associated Press. It reads, Rafah Gaza Strip, Gaza's health ministry and witnesses, said Israeli troops opened fire as a crowd of Palestinians gathered for humanitarian aid in Gaza City on Thursday, killing at least 20 and wounding dozens. The Israeli military said it is looking into the reports. The Associated Press could not independently confirm the details of what happened. Witnesses and health officials said the shooting took place at a roundabout on Gaza City's southern edge, where a large crowd gathered for distribution of food. Footage posted online and confirmed to have been taken on the main road near the roundabout showed hundreds of people fleeing, some carrying boxes of aid as fire rang out in the background. Men loaded wounded Palestinians onto horse and donkey carts that took off, charging down the avenue. At Shifa Hospital, where casualties were treated, Muhammad al-Rifa lay on the floor, his bloodied leg bandaged as medics worked on other wounded people around them. He said Israeli troops fired into the crowd. We were going to get flour. Young people were martyred and other people were injured. He said, Health Ministry spokesperson Ashraf al-Kidra 
said 20 people were killed and 150 others wounded by the shooting. Israeli troops and tanks pushed into Gaza City shortly after the ground invasion began in October. The military claims it largely dismantled Hamas in northern Gaza but still faces pockets of resistance. Large swaths of Gaza City and surrounding areas were reduced to rubble by Israeli bombardment. The UN has said it has been struggling to deliver aid to the north amid Israeli restrictions and continued fighting. Israel launched its offensive in Gaza, vowing to destroy Hamas after the October 7 cross-border attack in which about 1,200 people died. Militants abducted about 250 others. One of the largest air and ground campaigns in recent history, the assault has killed more than 25,900 Palestinians, according to Gaza's health ministry. Its count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants, but the ministry says most of the dead are women and minors. It says the real toll is higher because many casualties were buried under the rubble or are in areas where medics can't reach them. Here's an article, page 21 actually, Lowering the Stakes. Experts suggest ways to help teens and young adults avoid gambling risks. Written by Kimberly Palmer. And it reads, For Ambus Hunter, what started out as a fun trip to Las Vegas when he was 25 soon turned into a gambling addiction. I got consumed with the vibes, he says, recalling how he loved the feeling of winning at first. He began gambling back home in the Midwest and on business trips, playing roulette whenever possible. He burned through thousands of dollars of savings before realizing he needed to find a way to stop. Now fully financially recovered at 37, Hunter works as an accredited financial counselor in Baltimore, helping other people recover their finances that have been damaged by problematic gambling. I learned a lot about myself and my relationship with money, he says, lessons he helps others apply to their own lives and and budgets. Gambling is a growing problem among young adults, according to experts, largely because sports betting and other forms of online wagering are so easily accessible. More and more youth are becoming vulnerable to gambling and problem gambling. It's a social contagion, says Dorothy Knuckles, N-U-C-K-O-L-S, who teaches personal finance for the University of Maryland Extension in Central Maryland. Here's how experts suggest parents help teenagers and young adults avoid the risk of gambling. Raise the subject. Like sex and drugs, gambling should be on the list of topics to tackle with your children, says Lisa Damour, a clinical psychologist, parenting expert, and author of The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. While gambling might start out as a fun way to raise the stakes on sports viewing with friends, it can quickly spin out of control, she says. Damour considers gambling to be such a prevalent problem among teenagers that she dedicated an episode of her podcast, Ask Lisa, to it. It's very easy for kids to undergo uh, underground with this. Very easy for kids to go underground with this, as kids often hide risky behavior from their parents, she says. It's usually better if we're having open conversations about the risks to which they have access, and better if our kids see us as allies in keeping them safe and helping them make better decisions. That means talking about the downsides of gambling, such as losing a lot of money, versus banning them for participating at all, which can backfire, Damore says. If they want to do these things, we can't stop them, she adds. Avoid gambling gifts and games. While giving a lottery ticket as a gift to a child or organizing a fantasy football game or for a group of kids might seem harmless, 
Doing so can plant the seeds of gambling addiction, says Jeffrey uh, Derovensky, director of the International Center for Youth Gambling Problems and High-Risk Behaviors at McGill University. One of the early predictors for gambling problems is an early big win, Derovensky says. As a result, he urges parents to avoid purchasing lottery tickets for children. We are trying to delay the onset of gambling until people have the cognitive skills to set limits, Derovensky says. If you don't gamble, you can't become a problem gambler. And to enforce limits, parents can also make sure underage children living at home don't gamble online by blocking gambling sites and not providing access to a credit card, which is required before placing bets. We found many young people are using their parents' credit card to gamble, Derevinsky says. Kate DeBon, Vice President of Strategic Communications and Responsibility for the American Gaming Association, said that online gambling is for adults only. Legal gambling websites verify the age and identity of participants, which isn't necessarily the case for unregulated operators. Parents should never provide their own credentials to allow children to gamble, she added. Not only is it against the law, but it puts an adult product in the hands of a vulnerable population. And the other, the last uh, comment is to recognize the warning signs and to get help. one 800 G-A-M-B-L-E-R line, 1-800-GAMBLER-LINE, which offers free and confidential help. The organization also offers a free screening tool on its website to help people determine whether they should get help. 1-800-GAMBLER-LINE. Here's an article, Ukraine aid border deal faces potential collapse. Trump ramps up his criticism of agreement in the works for weeks. Dateline is Washington. It's an uh, Associated Press article. A bipartisan Senate deal to pair uh, borrow or border enforcement measures and Ukrainian aid faced potential collapse Thursday as Senate Republicans grew increasingly wary of an election year compromise that Donald Trump, the likely Republican presidential nominee, opposes. Senate negotiators have been striving for weeks for a compromise on border and immigration policy meant to tamp down the number of migrants who come to the U.S. border with Mexico. President Joe Biden and Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell have worked for months to broker the deal in hopes of uh, cajoling Congress to approve wartime aid for Ukraine to fend off Russian invasion. Trump ramped up his criticism of on his social media platform Thursday. He said the Senate is better off not making a deal, even if it means the country will close up for a while. He did not propose alternatives. In a private Republican meeting Wednesday, McConnell acknowledged Trump's opposition and discussed other options, including separating Ukraine and the border, according to two people who spoke anonymously. Here are a few highlights uh, from this day in history. On January 26, 2020, NBA legend Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter Gianna, and seven others were killed when their helicopter plunged into a steep hillside in dense morning fog in Southern California. The former Lakers star was 41 years old. On this date in 1915, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Rocky Mountain National Park Act, which created America's 10th National Park. In 1962, the United States launched Ranger 3 to land scientific instruments on the moon. The probe ended up missing its target by more than 22,000 miles. In 1992, Democratic presidential candidate Bill Clinton, appearing with his wife Hillary on CBS's 60 Minutes, acknowledged causing pain in my marriage, but said past problems were not relevant to the campaign. 
1994, a scare occurred during a visit to Sydney, Australia, by Britain's Prince Charles as college student David Kang lunged at the prince, firing two blank shots from a starter's pistol. Kang was later sentenced to community service. In 1998, President Bill Clinton forcefully denied having an affair with a former White House intern, telling reporters, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. In 2005, a U.S. Marine helicopter crashed in western Iraq, killing 30 Marines and a Navy medic aboard. And that kind of uh, is a list of some of the things that went on on this date in those years. And you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on January 26th, Friday. All it's um, I, uh, on Iris, Iris, Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger uh, for Friday, January 26. Lead story on the front page, budget time. County department heads share FY24 proposals with Board of Supervisors written by Kelby Wingert. And it says county departments spent this past week meeting with the Webster County Board of Supervisors to present their budget request for fiscal year 2024-25. Webster County Sheriff Luke Fleener kicked off budget season on Monday with the budgets for the Sheriff's Office, Webster County Jail, and Webster County Communications Center. Just two months, two months after a $45.5 million bond referendum to fund a new jail to replace the existing aging and overcrowded facility failed. Fleener requested $400,000 to house Webster County inmates in other county jails, a $50,000 increase over the previous year. Aside from employee salaries, that $400,000 is the biggest line item in the jail's budget and does not include the salary of the deputy transporting inmates, fuel cost, and wear and tear on the vehicles. According to Fleener, in 2023, the assistant jail administrator and other deputies traveled about 50,000 miles just transporting inmates with an estimated fuel cost of $12,000. In the November election, the bond referendum received roughly 55% yes votes, falling short of the 60% needed to pass. The largest budget expense for the sheriff's office is employee salaries. The Board of Supervisors asked the department heads to present their budget proposals with a 0% salary increase to have a baseline of the department's budget needs. For fiscal year 24, Fleener budgeted $2,023,240 for 21 sworn deputies, detectives, and courthouse personnel. He also budgeted $40,000 for the annual step increases the staff receives per their union contracts. Those salary expenses do not include the salaries of the sheriff or the chief deputy, which are collectively $209,000 for the current fiscal year. The administration salaries will be determined after the compensation board makes a recommendation to the board of supervisors. The proposed salary budget for the jail is for $1,215,000 for 23 officers and staff which includes $73,000 for the jail administrator, 
$63,000 for the assistant jail administrator, and $35,000 for an additional part-time cook. Fleener also proposed increasing the jail's overtime budget from $30,000 to $70,000. For the Webster County Communications Center, Fleener is proposing a $670,000 budget for salaries of 10 full-time staff, two part-time, and a director and assistant director. He also proposed uh, to increase the overtime fund from $40,000 to $60,000. For FY24, Fleener is proposing a budget of $200,000 to replace four patrol vehicles. The equipment for those vehicles is an additional uh, proposed $75,000. The equipment budget also includes $46,800 for the annual agreement payment for the Sheriff's Office's uh, body-worn camera and interior vehicle camera systems. In my time as Sheriff over the last few years, we've come a long ways in improving our equipment, giving our people the things that they need to do their job and do it very well, Fleener said. For fuel costs, including the funnel needed for inmate transportation, uh, for, I'm sorry, for fuel costs, including the fuel needed for inmate transportation, Fleener is requesting $95,000, an increase of $2,000 over last year. The sheriff's budget includes more than just expenses. The department is projecting to collect $210,000 in revenue from the contracts it has with the various communities in the county. The budget proposal for jail operations includes $110,000 in food and provisions for inmates, $7,000 for clothing and dry goods, $25,000 for janitorial supplies, and $40,000 on electronic key and accountability machines and safety improvements of electronic monitoring. In, this, in his proposal, Fleener noted that food costs have increased by about 10% in the cost of bedding. Towels and jail uniforms have also increased. An increase in inmates has also contributed to the rising cost. For fiscal year 2023-2024, the total budget of expenses and revenues for the Sheriff's Office, Jail, and Communications Center is $5,360,692. The total proposed budget for 2024-25 is 6,000, or I'm sorry, is 6 million $428,285. After hearing from all the company, county departments, the Board of Supervisors is now going over those proposals and will work with the department heads to craft the final budget that will be approved in March. Also on the front page, here's an article. Almost home to suspend adoption fees. Empty the shelter effort starts Thursday. Anyone who has ever considered adopting a dog or a cat from the Almost Home Humane Society of North Central Iowa will have an added incentive to do so starting next week. No adoption fees will be charged beginning Thursday and continuing through February 10, according to an announcement from the Society. The Bissell Pet Foundation is joining forces with the local Humane Society to sponsor this Empty the Shelter event. It follows an Empty the Shelter effort conducted in December that resulted in 58 pets being adopted. The upcoming effort is related to a puppy mill rescue conducted elsewhere in Iowa, according to Paul Shane, executive director of Almost Home. He said the local Humane Society has taken in some dogs from another shelter so that other facility can accommodate uh, the rescued dogs. As of Thursday, Almost Home had 31 dogs and 41 cats. 
Shane said anyone interested in adopting a pet should promptly complete an application. The screening process can take few days to complete, so it is important to get application in as early as possible, he said. Adoption applications can be obtained at almosthomeiowa.org or at the shelter at 725 South 2nd Street. The shelter is open Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays from noon to 6 p.m. and Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Anyone with questions about this initiative can contact Shane at 515-955-8343 or director at almosthomeiowa.org. A Sherdan woman killed in crash. This is a Sioux City Dateline. A Sherdan woman was killed in a crash in Sioux City Wednesday afternoon, not long after state troopers gave up their pursuit of her vehicle. The Iowa State Patrol identified her as Melissa Thede, T-H-E-D-E, 40 years old. Another driver involved in the crash, 21-year-old Hector Alvarez Calazo of Sioux City, suffered what troopers described as minor injuries and was transported to St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City. The state patrol reported that Thede was spotted speeding and driving erratically in a 2001 Chrysler PT Cruiser. Troopers attempted to stop her and the pursuit continued into Sioux City. State Patrol Supervisor ordered a halt to the pursuit after it got into city traffic. At 4.32 p.m., Thede crashed at the intersection of Gordon Drive and Spalding Street, according to the State Patrol. Troopers said Thede's vehicle slammed into the rear of a 2012 Ram 1500 pickup operated by Alvarez Calazo, and the PT Cruiser then rolled and hit a 2018 Fort Edge Ford Edge, operated by Tracy Kellen, 36 of Sioux City. Kellen was uninjured. Another article, Webster County Democrats elect new co-chairs. During a recent Central Committee meeting, the Webster County Democrats elected Claudia Couch, K-O-C-H, and Amber Rouse, Rouse, R-O-U-S-E, as the new WCD co-chairs by a majority vote. In addition, the WCD voted to keep the current state slate of party officers, including re-electing Nidra Conrad as treasurer, Lori Spangers as secretary, and Demarcus Carter as diversity, equity, and inclusion chair. Fort Dodge man sentenced to 15 years in federal meth case, written by Kelly Wingert, this story. Fort Dodge man who pleaded guilty in federal court last summer for his involvement in distributing several pounds of methamphetamine, methamphetamine in the area has been sentenced to 15 years in federal prison. Philip Pringle, 53, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine, distribution of methamphetamine, and aiding and abetting another in distribution of methamphetamine, according to the United States Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa. At his plea hearing in June of 23, Pringle admitted that he and others distributed several pounds of meth in the Fort Dodge area between January 2015 and December 2019, Prosecutors reported, in October 2019 and two occasions in 2020, Pringle was the source of drugs for an individual who had been selling meth to an undercover officer. An arrest warrant for Pringle was issued on October 19, 2021 for failing to appear for a hearing, and he was a federal fugitive until he was apprehended by the United States Marshals Service on February 14 of 23. U.S. District Court Chief Judge Leonard T. Strand sentenced Pringle to 15 years in federal prison on Tuesday. Pringle will also be required to serve a five-year term of 
supervised release following his incarceration. Fort Dodge Police Department and Webster County Sheriff's Office were among the agencies involved in the investigation. Headline on this article reads, State Regulators Poised to Decide Summit Pipeline Permit, written by Jared Strong, Iowa Capital Dispatch. Final arguments over Summit Carbon Solutions Pipeline Permit have concluded, and the Iowa Utilities Board is set to decide whether to approve the controversial subject or project. Summit says its expansive carbon dioxide pipeline system in Iowa would benefit the public economically and by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Because of that, eminent domain should be used to acquire land easements to build it, the company argues. But opponents of the project say the company's sole motivation is to make money and that the project's benefits to the environment are embellished. Those are some of the closing arguments that have been made in recent weeks to cap Summit's request for a hazardous pipeline permit. The Iowa Utilities Board is now charged with deciding whether the company is eligible for a permit and for eminent domain. Summit has obtained easements for about three-quarters of its more than 680-mile route in Iowa. There is no uh, statutory requirement that dictates when the board must make its decision and the board has not indicated when it might rule on Summit's permit. Summit argues that corn market is crucial to Iowa. Corn and the market for it is a crucial thread in the tapestry of Iowa's past, is inseparable from Iowa's present, and is the key to Iowa's success in the future, Summit wrote in its final arguments for the pipeline permit in Iowa. The company wants to build a five-state, $5.5 billion pipeline system to transport captured carbon dioxide from ethanol plants to North Dakota for underground storage. It would make the company and ethanol producers eligible for generous federal tax credits and enable those producers to sell their ethanol in low-carbon fuel markets. More than half of the state's corn is used to make ethanol, and advocates of the fuel argue that the ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the industry is vital for its future. This critical sector of Iowa's economy is under threat from the push to rapidly decarbonize the United States economy, Summit wrote. This threat, however, is also an opportunity. Ethanol blended with gasoline is the dominant fuel that is used to power uh, vehicles in the United States and reducing its carbon footprint is key to ensuring its longevity, Summit argues. Opponents say electric vehicles will make pipeline obsolete. There is potential for ethanol producers to capture and store carbon, uh, carbon dioxide emissions locally, but state geologists have said it will take years to uh, study its feasibility. Meanwhile, the automobile industry is uh, shifting to electric vehicles, partially at the behest of the Biden administration, which aims to make them 50% of new vehicles purchased by 2030. Because of that shift, opponents of Summit's proposed argue, proposal argue the potential environmental benefits of the pipeline network might be short-lived. Climate change is clearly the existential issue of our time, wrote Wally Taylor, the Sierra Club of Iowa, which opposes the project. Addressing that challenge primarily means phasing out the use of fossil fuels and transmitting, transitioning to renewable energy. Iowa is already a leader in constructing wind energy projects and is fast becoming a leader in solar energy. 
So we don't need to improve a project that delays that transition. Taylor's comments were part of uh, the final arguments that have been filed with the Iowa Utilities Board in recent weeks. They are the culmination of more than two-year process to decide whether Summit gets a permit. The company was the first to propose such a system in Iowa. Navigator CO2 sought to build a similar pipeline network but abandoned its plans in October amid regulatory setbacks in Illinois and South Dakota. Summit has also had setbacks in North and South Dakota where utility regulators rejected its first proposal. The company has asked North Dakota to reconsider its request and it plans to reapply in South Dakota after adjusting its route. The pipeline proposals have created odd bedfellows with environmental groups joining with farmers and Republican lawmakers to resist them. Opponents worry about their safety, the damage to our farmland uh, during their construction, and whether they are appropriate candidates for eminent domain. Time for a few uh, obituaries. Doris Harms, Doty, Fort Dodge, 90 years old, passed away Tuesday, January 23. Friendship Haven. Surrounded by her loving family, funeral services will be held 10.30 a.m. Monday, the 29th of January at St. Paul Lutheran Church. Burial will follow at North Lawn Cemetery. Visitation will be held on Sunday, January 28th from 2 to 5 p.m. at Losweiler Funeral Home. Dorothy Hughes, 98, of Fort Dodge, died peacefully Wednesday, January the 24th at the Simpson Health Center. Mass of the Christian burial will be 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 29, at Holy Trinity Catholic Church. Interment will follow at Corpus Christi Cemetery. The visitation is um, from 9.30 to 10.15 a.m. on Monday at the church. Celebration of Dorothy's life will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday in the pocket door lounge near the main entrance at Friendship Haven, where the family will greet friends. Arrangements have been entrusted to Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Gary Rolfes, R-O-L-F-E-S, Clinton, 76 years old, passed away on Monday, January 22, at Mercy One Clinton, Mercy One uh, Clinton. A mass of Christian burial will be at 1.30 p.m. Saturday, January 27th, at Prince of Peace Catholic Church in Clinton, with a luncheon to follow immediately. Visitation will be held Friday, January 26th, that's today, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Prince of Peace. Memorial contributions may be made to the family's discretion. Uh, Pape Funeral Home in Clinton is handling arrangements. Online condolences may be left at uh, papefh.com. Here's some uh, go-and-do things around the area. In Dayton, the Dayton Community Club is holding a Dayton Community Grocery Free Will Donation Meal fundraiser from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Sunday at the Dayton Community Center in Dayton. Free Will Donation Meal of pulled pork, baked beans, chips, dessert, and drink will be served at 11 a.m. until it's gone. There will be a silent auction from 11 a.m. to 1.45 p.m., and funds raised will help keep the grocery store open. In Clare, Public Library is holding its annual pancake breakfast and bake sale fundraiser from 8.30 to 11.30 a.m. Sunday at the Clare Community Center. Menu is pancakes, sausage, and loaded and plain scrambled eggs, juice, coffee, hot apple cider. Tickets are $7 for adults, $6 for children with 
children ages three and under free. All proceeds will go to the library. Emmitsburg, benefit for A.J. Sales Jr. is 4.40 uh, to 7 p.m. Saturday at the VFW Emmitsburg. Free will donation meal begins at 4.40 p.m. with a live auction starting at 5.30 p.m. Salas suffers from having a heart attack and triple bypass surgery and continues to be out of work on medical leave since November 13. All money raised will go to help him with medical, travel, and living expenses. For more information or to donate, you can call Sonia at 712-298-0799 or Kathy at 712-480-0859. An account has been set up at the Iowa Trust and Savings Bank for monetary donations. And Otho Fire Soup Supper is 4.30 to 7 p.m. Saturday at the Otho Fire Station. Menu is choice of homemade chili or chicken noodle soup served with a cinnamon roll and water. Lemonade or coffee tickets are $5 per person. In Fort Dodge, Eggs and Issues Legislative Forum is at 8.30 to 10 a.m. Saturday in the uh, Triton Cafe Boardroom on the Iowa Central Community College campus. Forum is free. And St. Edmund Catholic School, 2321 6th Avenue North, is holding a Chris Cakes pancake breakfast from 8 a.m. to noon Sunday in the high school cafeteria. Pancake, sausage, juice, coffee be served for a free will donation. Moving into sports section now, Fort Dodge Girls I State Invites, written by Chris Johnson. Dateline is Sioux City. John Koenig has prepared the Fort Dodge Girls wrestling team for meets like this. The Dodgers will compete in a super regional tournament for the right to advance to the state. Action will begin at 10 a.m. inside Tyson Events Center on Friday. That's be today. The top uh, four individuals at each weight will advance. The Dodgers will be joined by area schools Algona, East Sac County, Emmitsburg, and Manson, Northwest Webster, in Region 2. So that's going on today. Koning believes last week's challenging tournament in Mason City and other similar events such as Dan Gable, Donnybrook have prepared his athletes for a meet like this. We get to meets like this. We get to these arenas with huge tournaments and they see what the crowd is like, Koning said. It takes away the shock, the shook effect, and they are more comfortable competing the next time they're in that environment. We're looking for big things out of these girls. They all have a legit shot of advancing to state. It has already been a historic season for Fort Dodge, which won its first duel of the season against Riverside and captured their first tournament title at the West Central Valley Invitational. Seniors Maddie Pulis and Macy Brown, along with ninth-ranked sophomore Mariaha, Maria, Mariaha Benedict, are attempting to get back to state. Hope I pronounced that right. Sorry. Last year in the first ever girls sanctioned state tournament, both Pulis and Benedict finished two to two, nearly reaching the medal around Pulis 170, who was a super regional champion last year, is 33 and 10 on the season. All three of them have lofty goals, Koning said. This is the meet where we have to take it one step at a time. Everyone is 0-0 and starting from scratch. If you lose, you have to wrestle back through the backside and realize that you have to show your mettle and resilience. Benedict, 40-6 and six, at 135, has a career record 
of 69 to 22. Brown has 41 wins, and Pulis is sitting at 51 career victories in two seasons. Joining the state qualifiers with over 25 wins are sophomores Alejandra Manzanilla, 26 and 17, at 105, and Grace Harvey, 28 and 13, at 110, along with junior Delaney O'Connor, 26-21. Area squads, Humboldt, Pocahontas area, South Central Calhoun will wrestle in Mason City in Region 7. Eagle Grove and West Bend Mallard will be in Mason City as part of Region 8. Storm Lake, the dateline on this story. Too much for the um, Fort Dodge girls. The Fort Dodge girls basketball team couldn't get into an offensive rhythm against Storm Lake on Thursday. The Tornadoes, 10 and 6 overall, built a 47 to 12 lead at the half, and shorthanded Fort Dodge couldn't get any closer, failing, falling 75 to 29. They were about nine deep, said FDSH head coach Scott Messerly. They're really big, really fast, and aggressive. I thought they were one of the best teams we will see all year. They pressed most of the game, and we just didn't adjust well. The Dodgers, 7-8, and eight, struggled to score. Brooklyn Palmer led the Dodgers with 14 points, while uh, L.J. Mayo also reached double figures with 13, 11 points and 8 rebounds. Adia Yanga led the Tornadoes with 22 points as four players reached double figures. Grace Kenkel added 16, while Avery DeHaan, had 12, and Maddie Raveling added 10. The Dodgers are back in action on Friday when they host Waterloo East 4-9 as part of a girl-boy doubleheader. Here's a couple stories from the area roundup. Dodger 8th graders sweep. The Fort Dodge 8th grade boys basketball team swept Marshalltown on Thursday. The Dodgers took the A game, 46-19. Reggie Peterson had 14 points. Brody Mayhill added 12. The B squad rolled 43-19. Kytrell Henderson, 14 points. And Kavion Spencer, 10, paced FDMS. The C, 38-17. And D, 15-16. Teams allowed uh, also one big. Des Behrens, 13. And Lavin Krause, 6, were leading scorers. And Fort Dodge to host a youth wrestling tourney on Sunday. Fort Dodge will host a late-season youth wrestling tournament Sunday at FDSH. And fee is $20 if you sign up online or $30 at the door. Divisions include Super Pee-wee, PK through K, Pee-wee, 1st, 2nd, and Bantam, 3rd uh, and 4th, Junior, 5th and 6th, Senior, 7th and 8th. Weigh-ins are set between 8 and 9 a.m. with wrestling to begin as soon as brackets are complete. Matches will follow round robin bracketing. Sign-up information is on trackwrestling.com. For more information, contact Blake Butley at B-U-T-L-E-Y at fdsschools.org. That is B as in boy, U-T-L-E-Y at fdsschools.org. And Algona cruises to victory, Clarion. Algona girls posted a 77-42 victory over Clarion Goldfield, Dows, here Thursday night. Lauren McLaughlin scored a game-high 25 to lead the Bulldogs as Hayden McLaughlin added 14 in both Hayden and uh, Kuhlman, and Balajo Dunning scored 13. Sawyer Morikal and Indy Johnson each had 12 for the Cowgirls. 
Before we wrap it up, sports on TV, the event, uh, men's college basketball, Ohio at Kent State, 5.30 p.m., CBS SN. Uh, Michigan State at Wisconsin, 7 p.m., Fox S1. Stanford at California, 9 p.m., Fox S1. College Wrestling, Michigan is at Ohio State, 6 p.m., BTN. And Iowa's at Illinois, 8 p.m. on BTN. And let's see. If you're interested in golf, LPGA Drive-On Championship, 11 a.m. is at GLF. PGA Farmers Insurance Open, 2 p.m. GLF. College Gymnastics, if interested. Alabama's at Florida, 6 p.m. ESPN 2. Men's College Hockey, Denver's at North Dakota, 7.30 p.m. CBS SN. And I think that's about it. There is a high school boys basketball ESPN High School Showcase, 10 p.m. ESPN U. So that then brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, and I hope you have a great day.